And we welcome you to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. You've heard me say it on the program before, and I will say it again. One of my greatest pleasures in hosting the morning show is when I get to talk with first-rate documentarians about wonderful documentaries. And uh, even apart from the radio station, I love taking in documentaries. Uh, But it is especially fun to be able to be taken behind the scenes by whoever has written or produced or or directed it. And uh, in this case, I am so excited to be reconnecting with Stephen Ives, with whom I've spoken on several different occasions uh, on on the morning show about some of the wonderful films that he has put together. One of the first times we talked was about his lovely American experience documentary about the great racing horse Seabiscuit. And I know we have spoken as well about films like The Roads, uh, the Roads to Memphis, as well as his series The Great War, focusing on uh, World War I. He did a marvelous uh, film collaborating with Ken Burns, a series uh, devoted to the West. And his latest film is absolutely fascinating and also the kind of film that unearths for us a fascinating story that most of us know absolutely nothing about. The film is titled Ruthless. Monopoly's Secret History. And Monopoly, and we are talking about the board game, the beloved board game, maybe the best-selling board game in history. And uh, this film uncovers uh, its really complicated and even troubling history. And uh, this film will air Monday night on PBS stations across the country, including Channel 10 in Milwaukee, as part of the American Experience series. And uh, I'm excited to speak with Stephen Ives, who is both writer and director of this marvelous film. Stephen Ives, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Hi, Greg. Great to talk to you again. I'm really, really excited about this. I want to just clarify something uh, real quick. You are the writer and the director. I think you're not the producer of this film. Is that right? No, the producer is my longtime fantastic partner, Amanda Pollock. Terrific. Can you kind of separate that out for us? Uh, And and maybe the line is a relatively blurred one, but I'm just really curious to know uh, what her duties are as producer versus yours as director, and to what extent you are typically in very close collaboration with one another on a film like Ruthless. Yeah, um, Amanda is the sort of the definition of an incredibly engaged, creative producer. I mean, on one level, she handles logistics and contracts and legal issues and the budget. Uh, and that's an essential thing that a producer needs to do. And she's also really involved in mapping out production, which can be sometimes an extremely complex logistical operation. Um, but a good producer like Amanda also is deeply invested in the story. She understands uh, the way in which films need to be structured. She's engaged in the editing room. She has really thoughtful ideas about character and story development, about interviews and about how they should be used. So it's a really wonderfully spirited, and, uh, and when it works well, which it does with Amanda all the time, just a deeply rewarding collaboration. And uh, I, love, I love the fact that we have such a, a close, Uh, connection and have made so many interesting films together. I know that I have talked to documentarians who have been both director and producer of a given film, and I don't know how common or uncommon that is. Do you ever wear the mantle of of producer as well as director, or by and large, are you happiest with 
what happened in this film where you are directing and those producer duties are uh, are someone else's responsibility? I, I've done it all. You know, uh, I've been producer, director, and writer at times, which is a lot to put on your plate. But that's a that's an interesting challenge as well. I mean, I'm happy it's writing and directing. Uh, I think I know what I'm best at. And uh, I'm, an, you know, I can produce films, but it's not my strength. Uh, I'm nowhere near as good a producer as Amanda is. And so when I can uh, avail myself of her talents, uh, it's a much stronger combination. Very good. Well, this is a terrific film. I absolutely loved it. And, uh, and I think I am going to be like the typical viewer in knowing absolutely nothing about this story. And, you know, of course, that's not always the case. I mean, when you're doing a film about, for instance, the racing horse Seabiscuit, most of us, as we turned on our televisions, had at least a vague notion of Seabiscuit. And, of course, most of us have, a, have some acquaintance with the game of Monopoly. But this story of its, in a sense, kind of cloudy origins is something that I was absolutely unknown to me. How did you first come across this particular story? I mean, the complicated origins of Monopoly. How did this story initially cross your path? Well, it's so funny. I, you know, I can't, it was 18 years ago, and I can't remember exactly how it popped onto my radar, but I came across a book called The Billion Dollar Monopoly Swindle, and it was written by this guy named Ralph Onspach, and he was this um, a crusading uh, um, guy who uh, he was an economics professor out in California. He and he got wrapped up in a lawsuit with Parker Brothers, and over the course of his lawsuit, uncovered this entire secret history that no one had really known before. And I looked at it and thought that is just so ridiculous. I mean, how could we have not known about this? Um, in particular, because the heroine of the story is, is a woman who actually invented the game in 1904. Um, and for a complicated set of reasons, the film never got off the ground back back in 2005. But I managed to shoot an interview with Ralph in New York City because I just felt like it was such an important story. I didn't want to have it get, get away from me. And 18 years later, uh, the American Experience loved the idea and said, let's do it. And luckily, I hadn't lost the, the tape. So... <laughs> So I was able to weave that that historical interview with Ralph uh, through the film, and and he's kind of like the central um, motivating force in some ways around the story. If I understand correctly, Ralph Ansbach passed away in the spring of last year. Uh, was he in a position to see at least some of what you had done? He would have been well into his 90s, I think, by that point. Uh, was he aware that this film was finally being made? No, I'm so sorry to, to report that he, he passed away just as we were getting started. And it's really too bad because he would have loved this. Uh, you know, he was a wonderful guy. I, I admire him tremendously. And he had great conviction and, and really, he was just a brave, sometimes stubborn, but really uh, moral guy who took on this struggle, a very much a David and Goliath struggle against Parker Brothers and General Mills, the serial conglomerate that had bought Parker Brothers in the in the 70s and 80s. And um, and he he was this he's a great American, I think. And uh, and it, we're, we're lucky enough to have been able to get his story from him while he was still alive. Hmm. 
There are a lot of stories that are interesting, but that doesn't necessarily mean that a documentary film should be made about them. Uh, Tell us what you found not only compelling about this story, but also convinced you that you could really make an excellent film about it. I mean, what kind of things does one have to weigh when you're in the business of making documentary films in terms of whether or not this is that kind of story that should be told in this kind of way? Well, uh, you know, it's a very practical and good question, Greg. I mean, you have to kind of be realistic about whether there's it's a visual medium and is there anything to look at? Uh, And in this case, I I was convinced that Monopoly was such a, a kind of iconic part of American culture, that there'd be all sorts of material out there about the game and how we play it and what our relationship with it is. And and that proved to be true. And also, I knew that Mar- since I first met Ralph, this woman, Mary Pollan, had written a best-selling book called The Monopolists. And she really broke the story uh, to a, a broad audience. And I give her great credit for it. It was a best-selling book. And she she is a fantastic writer and really smart. And she I, I knew she'd give me a great interview um and and i felt like between her and ralph there was certainly going to be enough material to really crack this open and i i felt like monopoly was this lens through which it was a a way to understand and look at american capitalism in such an interesting way i mean because everything that you think of about uh, our our system greed competition ruthlessness even fraud and corporate kind of skullduggery it's all wrapped up in this one story, and it just felt like such an interesting way to take a look at who we are as a country and what we believe. And if you think about it, I mean, there isn't anything quite like Monopoly that we sort of put on an altar and bow down in front of and celebrate this unbridled capitalism. It's like this na- national shrine to a kind of winner-take-all um, economic system. And I just felt like that was really worth unpacking and and, um, exploring a little bit. We're speaking with Stephen Ibes, who is a writer and director for the next film to uh, air in the PBS series American Experience, a really fascinating film called Ruthless, Monopoly's Secret History. Uh, It explores the really tangled origin story of the board game Monopoly and uh, views it through several different lenses. Before we get into the heart of the story of this board game, um, I think it would be interesting for us to talk for a few minutes about this whole business of monopolies, of, of what a monopoly is, and, uh, and what I think is pretty clearly your own perspective on monopolies and uh, whether they tend to be a force for good or ill uh, in the world. Let's begin with with just that that notion, maybe maybe even uh, a, a pretty careful definition of what we mean by a monopoly, and then what you touch on in the film at the outset, which is uh, the place of powerful monopolies in our country's history. Yeah, well, monopolies are uh, very much a, a something that most businesses, if they are honest with themselves, want. It's uh, the ability to dominate a market, dominate uh, a means of production, dominate pricing, dominate your competition to a degree that you own 
uh, an entire sphere of the economy. And Standard Oil was one, uh, you know, uh, AT&T was one in its day, huge companies that basically don't have to worry about competition. And I think it's, I agree with Ralph Ansbach, who hated monopolies and, and who felt like he, you know, he uh, was dealing with the OPEC oil monopoly in the 70s, which we all remember if we're old enough. And, um, you know, monopolies are just bad for, bad for a well-functioning economy. They uh, are create an un, unlevel playing field, um, and they're they're something that the country as a whole, I think, needs to be really vigilant about, because we we talk a big game about being all in favor of you know competition and the freedom of the marketplace, but if we're not proactive about antitrust issues and about companies getting uh, overwhelmingly powerful in one sphere or another. We're going to lose out. I mean, I don't know whether you followed the recent Taylor Swift concert tour debacle where Live Nation basically has a complete monopoly on major concert venues. And it's something that Congress is looking at right now. Uh, but it took a, a kind of chaos in, a, in Taylor Swift's most recent concert tour to kind of bring that to people's attention. Hmm. Early in the film, a, a, a really kind of starkly uh, stated uh, sentence uh, we hear is capitalists don't like competition they want a monopoly that is for yeah. for those who believe at least in a in a certain brand of maybe pure capitalism or maybe not, i don't know if pure is maybe the right adjective uh but unbridled capitalism let's say uh in in a sense a monopoly is what you want. That is, in a sense, the ultimate goal. Maybe that's a marker of the ultimate success in uh, a capitalist system. Well, in some ways, I mean, you, you, you want to rise to the top. You want to have the best product. You want to uh, control the marketplace as best you can. And look, I don't blame executives from uh, CEOs from, from driving their companies forward and trying to make them the best that they can, can be. Um, it's just a question of when does an overwhelming dominance uh, actually stop serving the consumer? Uh, and in this case, um, you know, Ralph uh, was he, – he decided to come up with a game, a board game in the 70s um, that he called anti-monopoly. And he felt like uh, a game needed to be out there that sort of showed uh, the other side of, of the story. And – to his su surprise, at that point, General Mills sent him a nasty letter and said, you've got to stop publishing your game. You've got to destroy all the copies you have because you're infringing on our trademark. And Ralph, you know, if it was you or me, Greg, you get a scary letter from a multinational corporation like that, you'd like to just say, okay, I'll do whatever you say. But he said no, and he fought them. And he fought them for over a decade, all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. Mm. And, and, and emerged victorious. And in the course of that crusade, he uncovered uh, the fact that the, the game had been in the public domain and that, it in, in fact, it had been invented by a woman in 1904. It hadn't been invented by Charles Darrow, the supposed inventor, in 1935 during the Great Depression. Mm. One of the really striking moments in the film... This is before we're even getting into the specific story of the board game, is when you're talking about 
the problem with monopolies and you show us some starkly contrasting photographs um, of certain images of America, I would presume, close to the turn of the century uh, yeah. to really kind of point out the the wrenching uh, differences between the haves and the haves not have nots i mean something which of course we are very much talking about today in some respects it is even a more extreme situation that we're talking about in at this period of time uh just explain to our listeners the striking visuals that that you as director chose to kind of serve up uh this this uh, this contrast well i mean they're 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 wonderful to to behold i mean the, the the robber barons, as they were called by that era, were just extraordinarily wealthy. I mean, what's amazing is that Elon Musk's wealth dwarfs the wealth of J.P. Morgan and Andrew Carnegie and and um, Rockefeller um, as a percentage. But these guys were tremendously powerful. They perfected the look of the top hat and the, the elegant uh, waistcoat and the the the, the fantastic um, limousines, and they were presiding over a country that was emerging from the Gilded Age, where income inequality had become perverse, um, and the vast majority of working men and women were living in, if they were in cities, in horrible tenements. Uh, a lot of them were immigrants who'd come to America with very little to begin with, and it was this condition, this sense of inequality that inspired the inventor of Monopoly, Lizzie McGee, to first try and articulate her economic message through the power of a board game. Mm. She was a... Oh, go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about Henry George if you'd like, because he's a fascinating guy. Right. Um, let, let's... Uh, we, we need to learn about both of them. Lizzie, Jane... Uh, let's, let's actually begin with Lizzie, born in 1866. Yeah. She is a remarkable woman in so many respects and uh, very much out of the ordinary in just about any way that that, that, that you can imagine. Uh, tell us a little bit about her early background and some of the striking things that she did uh, before we ultimately get to Chicago and her encounter with Henry George and so on. But tell us about the early life of Lizzie McGee. She was raised in uh, Macon, Illinois. Um, she was the child of a successful newspaper publisher who was a friend of the young Abraham Lincoln at the time when Lincoln was traveling around doing his debates with uh, um, Stephen Douglas. And um, she was raised in a very smart, interesting family, and she was a feminist. She was an inventor. She had a, a patent for helping. She was a typist. She, she filed a patent for helping a, a, an invention to help typewriters manage their the paper in the in the carriage return better. Um, but more than that, she was pushing boundaries. She she bristled at the way in which women were treated in her in her society, and she to draw attention to this created a advertisement that she put in news local papers, in which she advertised herself as a young American woman slave. And it was clearly a piece of performance art. It was designed to provoke and shock people. Hmm. But of course, she got offers. Right. People offered to, to uh, take her on, to hmm. buy her. And her point was, 
to try and highlight the inequality that she felt uh, between the sexes and the way in which women's latitude and opportunity to to, uh, move forward in their lives was constrained. And she was just, she was featured in big magazine and and newspaper spreads. She was really a, a, a sort of, uh, celebrity in a way in her day because she was so out there and mm-hmm. I just love her for it. Absolutely. I mean, and even when one knows something about the the history of, of feminism and uh, the battle for, uh, for equal rights and, and for, for women to achieve the vote and so on, uh, even if one is fairly well read in that in that struggle, you might not yet know the name of Lizzie McGee, but uh, she is someone who sh- absolutely should not be forgotten. Your film tells us that uh, by early in the 20th century, she is living in Chicago, and that's where she takes out these ads with the headline, Young Woman for Sale. Uh, yeah. And uh, ultimately, she encounters one Henry George. Tell us about Henry George, who he was, and in a sense, the principles uh, he stood for. Well, Henry George was an extremely popular writer and lecturer of the day. His books sold millions of copies. And he believed that the problem with inequality in America came down to taxes and land. He felt like land, landlords who sat on property and benefited from them but didn't do anything with that land were, were basically exploiting a resource that was, was part of the common good. And he felt that a single tax on land was the only tax necessary. And that that money should be used to pay for schools and and um, public works and all sorts of things to create a more just and equitable society. And he was a, he was a uh, you know a, a, a kind of a pre pre uh, precursor of the socialist movement in America. Um, and Lizzie McGee followed his single tax beliefs and and felt very much that he was you know her hero and and the purpose of her game was to try and popularize his single tax theories. So uh, this and, and and it's it's such an intriguing idea to think about this principle that is a little bit complicated. Uh, I mean, the name does not immediately suggest what it really is, but she has this insight that a board game could help people kind of understand and grasp this. If I remember correctly, she's the first woman in America to to gain a patent on a board game. And her board game is called, as you said, the Landlord's Game. And uh, tell us about this, the dual set of rules, which is uh, a really unique feature to the game and uh, really points to uh, what the point of it was as far as she was concerned. Yeah, her first set of rules was basically the game that we recognize as Monopoly. The, you know, buy, a, buy all the property, crush the competition, and the, the winner is the last person standing. Uh, and she meant that to be a way of showing off how brutal and, and unfair capitalism was. Um, and the great irony is that her critique of capitalism turned out in our hands to be a celebration of it. Um, the other set of rules was a more complicated set of rules where you played, your goal was to sort of break up monopolies and, and contribute to the common good. And it was quite complicated to follow. And not surprisingly, it didn't catch on. The one that did is the one that we play today. 
Um, and um, But she did understand that games are powerful, that games, when you play a game, there's a subtle but, but, but important way in which you're, you're inculcating values and ideas and, and, and impressions in the, in the play of the game that may not be completely uh, uh, aware, you might, might not be completely aware of them, but you really are being changed by them. And she felt that a, a game, and I think that's in, in many ways one of the things that makes Monopoly interesting, is that it subtly or not so subtly inculcates in all of us this celebration of American capitalism, perhaps maybe an unthinking celebration of American capitalism. So, so games have power. They have um, the ability to, to change people's minds, and Lizzie tried to capitalize on it. Right. And you know, and you're you're pointing to something that's that's really interesting. I mean, I suppose on the one hand, somebody could say the typical American loves capitalism, so the typical American is going to love Monopoly, playing Monopoly, and relishing that 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 experience. What you yeah. are suggesting is is something related but different, which is that in the act of playing Monopoly. Uh, one is going to very likely find your 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 attitudes ab- about capitalism, for instance, uh, guided, tilted in 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 a certain direction. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I don't want to be some you know super wet blanket. I mean, look, everybody loves Monopoly. I love playing it as a game. It's 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 wonderful. It's part of our culture. It's part of our nostalgia. It's a rite of passage. It's almost like we hand it off to our kids. It's like when your kids get old enough, you, you wonder whether you can finally give them the first, you know, the Beatles album or when they can go to Disney World. It's one of these iconic things. And I think it's a great, it's a great part of American culture. But at the same time, I think it's important to realize it's really based on this sort of mythic vision of America. I mean, if you think about it, you start a game of Monopoly, everybody gets the same amount of money. Everybody has access to the bank whenever they need it. Everyone, the, the winner is the person who thinks that they play the game the best way. And we know that the real uh, uh, playing field is not level like that, that there are all sorts of issues having to do with race and gender and inherited money and luck um, that play into who comes out on top. And I think that that's, you know, that's an important thing just to remember hmm. uh, when you think about the game. So it's important for us to understand about this early game created by Lizzie McGee in terms of who was playing it and, in a sense, how this game spread. I mean, in the early going, was this a game that was, in a sense, published and sold uh, the way we think of games being published, you know, made in a factory and duplicated and, and, and sold. Your, your film talks mostly about how it was, in a sense, spread almost like a folktale <laughs> with interesting yeah. variations and so on. So just help us understand kind of the early life of this game that Lizzie McGee created. Well, it was almost an early version of what we now think of as a viral phenomenon, but it was very limited in its scale. I mean, Lizzie just invented it, spread it around to her liberal... Uh, left-leaning group of people who were 
Henry George uh, followers and socialists. And it started to catch on in, in liberal uh, college campuses, and it just spread from one group to another. And one thing that everyone would do is that they would um, customize the board and put their own street names on it um, and add little ideas that they had. And um, it just kept moving around the East Coast until a group of Quakers got the game. And they uh, had a significant presence in Atlantic City, and they were the ones that added the Atlantic City names, street names that have become iconic for us, Baltic and Mediterranean, Boardwalk and Park Place. And, and they were the ones that also added hotels to the game because they, a lot of Quakers owned hotels in Atlantic City. That was a big business for them. Um, and they were the ones that um, kind of gave the game its, its iconic place that we all think of and know today. This uh, was a surprise to me when you mentioned these Quakers in Atlantic City, just because, uh, I mean, I don't claim to know a lot about the Quaker faith, but I would not have assumed that it would have, it would be a group of Quakers who would latch on to this game and, in a sense, transform it into the form uh, in which it is familiar to all of us today. Uh, is... Is is there something about the Quaker faith that makes it uh, you know, kind of a, an, an easy and seamless transition? Or were these just um, a, a bunch of Quakers who just happened to like Monopoly? Um, well, it's a kind of interesting story. I mean, uh, I'm a Quaker on my mother's side. And uh, oh. uh, it's an interesting thing because I'm both a Quaker, so that's a connection to the story. And also my great-great-grandfather was the first publisher of the first board game in America back in 1843 wow. in Salem, Massachusetts, a, a really boring game called The Mansion of Happiness. Um, <laughs> oh, you so show I us that in the film. We see an image of that, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, if you look carefully, I snuck the, the Ives building in Salem, Massachusetts into that se- sequence. But <laughs> um, uh, So it sort of comes to me, oddly, from both sides of my family. But Quakers were, an, I agree, an unlikely group of people that you'd think of in Atlantic City, which was a before Las Vegas, was the vacation playground uh, in America. Uh, but And they were teetotalers, and so it's hard to imagine that they were, you know, uh, tailor-made for a, a city like Atlantic City, but they were good businessmen, and they happened to get into the hotel business. Um, and so they had quite a significant community in Atlantic City, and when they brought the game with them from Philadelphia down to Atlantic City, they they started to customize it and add uh, the color codings and add some of the iconic uh, tokens that we now think of, like the thimble, or um, uh, they would use anything that they had locally that they could use, like a button or something, as a token to to move around the board. Um, and that and it, it, it's funny because they you. It's, it's something we go into a little bit in the film, which is that the, the Quakers inadvertently create a kind of a snapshot of race and class in Atlantic City. Because we, we have to remember, it was a deeply segregated city back then. Um, we always like to think of the North as being less encumbered by racism than the South, but it couldn't be farther from the truth. The Atlantic City was a deeply racist place. And Baltic and Mediterranean were the 
black parts of town, they were the least valuable properties, and that's what the Quakers reflected when they put Baltic and Mediterranean on the board, and then uh, uh, other uh, parts of the uh, board, like Boardwalk and Park Place, were the richest parts of town. And so, in, a, in an interesting way, you see a little bit of a reflection of redlining and racial disparity reflected in America's favorite board game. Fascinating. We're speaking with Stephen Ives about his film Ruthless, Monopoly's Secret History. So, we fast forward to the mid-1930s and to what had been for many years presented as the origin story of Monopoly. In fact, there's a great little moment early in the film in which we see a little bit of animation done sort of in the style of the visuals that we see in some of the cards in the Monopoly game. And uh, as we see what was supposedly the origins of this this game, uh, remind our listeners about uh, the man to whom uh, the invention of Monopoly uh, was credited for so many years. Um, Charles Darrow uh, was an out-of-work um, uh, radiator repairman in the depths of the Depression. And one day he bumps into a friend who is a part of this Quaker community, and he, is, he and his wife go over and play Monopoly with them. And he loves the game, and he asks for a copy of the rules, and um, they give it to him. And he then takes the game and in effect, steals the game and, and markets it himself and claims that he's the inventor. And to his credit, he adds some of the artwork that we think of as sort of iconic on the board right now, the free parking space and some of the, uh, some of the other look, the look and feel of the game. But, and he's successful. He gets it into Wanamaker's department store in, in, um, in Philadelphia. He gets it into FAO Schwartz. He takes it to Parker Brothers, and they turn him down because they think it's too complicated. But as it starts to take off, Parker Brothers suddenly says, wait a minute, maybe we overlook something. And they go back and they buy it. And they, they confront Darrow and they say, now you're the inventor of this game, right? And he says, oh yes, absolutely. I dreamed it up one night uh, in my basement. And that is the myth that Parker Brothers and Darrow spin for the next 70 years. Mm. Um, and, um, it is, well, maybe not 70, because Ralph comes along in the 70s, so maybe for another you know, 40 years, that's the reigning idea, that, that Darrow is this rags-to-riches uh, inventor, this Horatio Alger hero who picks himself up by his own bootstraps and has a burst of inspiration and creates America's favorite board mm. game. By the and way... It's a narrative, mm-hmm. it's a narrative that Americans wanted to hear. You know, it was a powerful message in the Depression, and and Parker Brothers just wrote it all the way to the bank. Mm. And that that speaks to something else I wanted to say, which is that uh, apparently the initial uh, reluctance for game manufacturers like Parker Brothers uh, to take on this game was because uh, at, at least their their initial thought was it's the Depression. Who in the world, who in their right mind, would want to play a game that has to do with uh, winning money and uh, building hotels and owning property and all of this stuff, which was in such stark contrast to the reality of most Americans' daily lives. And I I think at some point somebody figured out that actually a lot of times we, we play games not because they reflect what our lives are like, but 
because they sometimes reflect what we wish our lives were like or give us a chance right. to escape the reality of our lives. Yeah, it's just like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dancing in, in white tie and tails during the dark days of the Depression. I mean, it's a and, and games are like that. Games are full of role playing. They're full of fantasy. They're full of uh, you're in, you're allowed to take on a different persona and act in ways that you might not act outside of the, the context of a game. And I think that that's one of the great, powerful things that is appealing about Monopoly. I mean, who doesn't love crushing their older brother or older sister at Monopoly? Who doesn't love being the, uh, you know, unbridled capitalist who's, who's out there destroying the competition? It's, a, it's an exhilarating and fun thing to do, and you get rich. Hmm. Um, and, and, and I think Americans, especially in the Depression, just really needed that release, and that's part of the reason the game had such a powerful appeal. You know, I'm just, as you're talking about that, I'm realizing something that I don't think otherwise I would have paused to, to articulate. But one really nice through line in your film is that there is a group of youngsters, I don't remember, four, five, six youngsters, that are playing the game. And every so often, it's as though our camera kind of swings back to these uh, to these youngsters playing a very spirited game of Monopoly and very demonstrative in you know when they're happy versus when they're anguished, as depending on how yeah. their fortunes in the game proceed. And I'm guessing uh, these maybe are the kids of some of the people involved in the making of this film. Maybe some of them are your own kids or something, but I love that presence because it kind of gives us a sense of for people who are swept up in playing this game, whether they're adults or children, that that is part of what what hooks us. Yeah, it's actually Amanda Pollock, my producer's son, and his friends from school, and you're right. I, I wanted to do that because I wanted to touch on what is everyone's memory of playing the game, which is that that sense of rivalry and chance. And there's that moment when people are waiting to roll the dice and are you going to land on my hotel on boardwalk? And, and it's really fun. And I wanted to just hearken back to everyone's nostalgia about the game and also provide a little sort of tableau that reminds us what play of the game is because a game I learned this from Eric Zimmerman this really smart guy in the film he said that, you know games are these immensely structured things with rules that define very much what you can and cannot do but inside that that very rigid uh, environment is this free form activity which we call play and you know when he was describing that to me I said gosh that sounds like classical it sounds like music and he said, well, it is. If you think music is a very rigid set of structures, but what do we do? We play music. It's this opportunity for a deeply creative outlet. And I think that's what's kind of so interesting about games is that tension between, between rules and play and the ways in which we can express ourselves through that. You mentioned the your ancestor who helped patent the very first board game in the United States, and you yourself said it was a painfully boring game. That's a really fascinating point that's made at one point in the film, that there was quite a long time where these board games, whatever they were, 
were fashioned really with the idea of we must teach our children important lessons, important morals. These must be educational tools. And uh, the idea that, you know, a board game should also be fun and entertaining was just like a foreign concept, apparently. And then at some point, and I, I think maybe your film is saying that it's the folks at Parker Brothers particularly who kind of figured that out, that, boy, these games better be fun to play as well, or there's no point. Yeah, that was George Parker's innovation. I mean, my great-grandfather's game was, you know, you avoid sloth and temperance and piety and all these incredibly dull virtues that you were supposed to follow. And George Parker said, games are fun. Games need to be fun. They should be a release. And and he uh, often tried to get games um, that he could, you know, market. And again, he wanted, when he could, a monopoly. And they tried to do it with ping pong, but ended up being undercut because people could just come out with another version of the game that they called table tennis. And the same thing happened with Mahjong, which was a huge craze in the 20s. And Parker Brothers first brought it out and tried to control it, and they couldn't control the market, and it slipped away from them. And those lost opportunities, those games that got away, kind of haunted Parker Brothers. And so when Monopoly came along and they realized that they had a huge hit on their hands, a game that was literally saving their company from bankruptcy during the Depression, and then they discovered that, in fact, Charles Darrow was a fraud and that the game had been invented by a woman in 1904. They had a huge problem on their hands. And they went about this very aggressive uh, campaign trying to buy up, silence, and co-opt any other games that were based on Monopoly or the landlord's game, Lizzie's game. And control them. It was almost like what happens when the National Enquirer buys an article uh, and then doesn't publish it. A catch and kill kind of scenario. And uh, in this case, the great irony is that Parker Brothers was setting out to monopolize the game of Monopoly, which you can't make this stuff up. Right, exactly. The irony is just too delicious. Well, of course, yeah. we return uh, to you know the, the the person who is such a, an important uh, figure in your in your film, Ralph Ansbach, uh, economics professor and an a avid anti monopolist who, as you mentioned earlier, created uh, a game that he called anti monopoly, in a sense a spoof. But I think the word spoof would suggest something playful. And uh, while there is maybe a, a playful element to it. Uh, in fact, he was really uh, wanting to make a very powerful point, and and uh, this game is quite popular. Uh, and then, of course, as you talk about, he gets a very scary letter from Parker Brothers, essentially a cease and desist, and yeah. that uh, sets in motion then uh, a really vigorous legal battle between Parker Brothers and Ralph Ansbach, uh, who believes that Parker Brothers perhaps does not have the right to, to to claim some kind of ownership over the whole concept of the game of Monopoly and, uh, and that his own game of anti-Monopoly should be allowed to exist. Can you just say a quick word about how Ralph Ansbach, and I assume his legal team, went about trying to cast doubt on Parker Brothers' hold on the game of Monopoly? I think this is exceptionally interesting. Mm. Well, if, uh, at first they just said, look, your trademark 
uh, infringement claim is is absurd. How can you confuse monopoly with anti-monopoly? It's the opposite. Um, and trademark law is an extremely slippery and complicated field of law. And for us, <clears throat> waded into the middle of that in the film would have been uh, going down a rabbit hole that really would not have worked and would have been incredibly boring. But what he basically does in the course of his struggle is he starts to uncover this history of the folk game. And he realizes that the game was basically in the public domain. And so anyone claiming uh, a, a patent on it uh, is, is basing it on, uh, on nothing, really. And he um, digs up some of the people that played the game in the teens and 20s and has them testify in court. And he loses. He has a judge that is very much in favor of corporations. And his first two cases, he loses. And he's literally this one guy fighting this massive corporation. Another great irony is that he's taken out three mortgages on his house to fight a, a monopoly uh, lawsuit. And he is, uh, he's really near the end of his rope and uh, on the bank, brink of ruin. And just as it's going to trial, Parker Brothers and General Mills tries to settle with him. And they offer him a lot of money. And he turns them down. And he is a man of principle. And he is determined to be vindicated at the end of the day. And he, he fights on. And at the very end, he, his, his, um, his side wins. Hmm. And it's really quite wonderful. By the way, as you tell this story of this long legal battle, there's actually a precious few seconds in which we actually hear audio from some of the testimony of, of by this point, you know, old Americans, I mean, elderly Americans, remembering back many decades of, to playing the game of Monopoly back in the 1920s and maybe early 30s. And it's just so fascinating how powerful it is just to hear that audio it just brings it alive in an incredibly dramatic way. Yeah, thank God that they recorded depositions um, because that's where we got it from the uh, the court process, and it was wonderful to have those folks be kind of brought back out of the into the courtroom in effect and, 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 and testimony. It's an incredible story. Last quick question, uh, because you know you've already talked about, in a sense, your your feelings about monopolies. And, uh, and I'm sure your displeasure with what Parker Brothers got away with for so many, many years, I suspect you have little, if any, affection for the game of Monopoly itself and what it represents and, in a sense, the attitudes it tends to foster. Uh, are you at all concerned that your film is going to, in a sense, revive interest in a game that probably is a little bit set off to the side now in favor of other games that uh, capture our imagination more vividly these days. Uh, is that perhaps one slight drawback to telling this compelling story? No, I don't think so. I mean, I love Monopoly, and I hope people keep playing it, and I hope they introduce their kids to it, and I hope it promotes uh, great uh, fun and also chaos and sometimes recrimination and tears and uh, everything that usually happens at the end of a very long Monopoly game. I think it's a great part of America. Um, and I, I think that, you know, uh, 
General Mills that then became Hasbro, and they have, you know, uh, uh, customized their game now, 60 years later, so that they're now doing Star Wars Monopoly and Harry Potter Monopoly. There are 300 different kinds of Monopoly out there, and they've turned it into a billion-dollar brand. So I don't think looking back at a period when uh, they, uh, a big corporation used their sort of bare-knuckle approach to try and control the market um, is anything to be uh, shied away from. I think it's an important uh, lesson. It's maybe a little bit of a cautionary tale about how America really works and about how corporations tend to operate. Uh, and I think if it gives people a little, a little bit of a different perspective on the game when they play it uh, and makes them ask some sort of thoughtful questions about the American system, uh, then uh, I feel like we'll have done our job. Very well put. The film Ruthless Monopoly Secret History will air Monday night on the PBS stations across the country, including Channel 10 in Milwaukee, as part of the series American Experience. The writer and director of this wonderful film, Stephen Ives. Stephen Ives, thank you for being my guest today. It was great to reconnect with you, and congrats on a wonderful film. Always a pleasure, Greg. I really enjoy talking to you. Thanks.